0: Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 kind of had this crazy long list of everything he went through for Jesus. He's like, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten with rods three different times, whipped five different times. And he goes, and all of these things that have happened to me, my greatest concern is for you, for the church. Paul, Paul is basically saying, look, this is my heart, my heart is you guys. And so we looked at 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul kind of tongue-in-cheek, not really wanting to, but he goes, listen, you guys obviously like this culture of boasting and bragging. Let me, let me kind of show you how to do this. And I want to boast in my weakness so Christ could be made known. Now I'm bringing all this up because this leads into chapter 12. In chapter 12, Paul continues this thought. If you remember, we ended 11. Last week's like little story. He talks about being lowered down in a basket. And basically, we, we looked at the idea that the way of the kingdom is, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. The way up is down. And so Paul's lowered down this basket in Damascus. He went into the city to persecute it, to kill Christians. He ends up becoming a Christian, and then he ends up fleeing from that city. He went to persecute he ends up fleeing for his own life. And now in chapter 12, here's what we're going to see. We just see Paul go down in this basket. Now Paul's going to be lifted up. Paul's going to talk about a vision he has of heaven, a vision of being taken to heaven, he, he kind of words it in a strange way, and we'll talk about that. Then Paul says, to keep him humble, God gives him this thorn in the flesh. And so he, for years now, he's been carrying this sort of burden in his life, a thorn in the flesh. Maybe you've like heard that phrase, or Christians use that in kind of a weird way. Like, oh man, you know, it's just a thorn in my flesh. You're like, taxes, You're like, taxes are not a thorn in your flesh. But like, whatever. People kind of refer to things like a thorn in their flesh all the time, and they maybe misuse that phrase. Like, it's just a thorn in my flesh. We can abuse it. We can misuse it. So we want to talk about this thorn in the flesh. And we wanna talk about why even God allowed it or God gave it to Paul. And then we can see this response of Jesus, just this intimate response of Jesus saying, Paul, my grace is enough for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I mean, to me, this is such a powerful text. And I want you to see it from kind of the context, this argument he's making. He's boasting again in his weaknesses. And he's kind of introducing a new thought. You want to boast in visions and revelations? I'm going to boast to you at the greatest vision and revelation I've had. So why don't we just read this? Because this is a powerful text. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 10. Uh, We're going to read and study through this, but let's just read it first. So verse 1, Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Let's, let's hit a new topic. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my, on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming seated, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh." A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Everyone say amen. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is one of those texts where you just want to read it and be like, all right, amen, let's go home. Because you just feel like this is just so powerful. There's so much here. And I feel like we see really some secret to Paul's way of living. Like what motivated Paul for all these years. And I just want to pray and ask that God would just impress this on our hearts, that this would be more than information, this would be more than a Bible study, uh, but that we live just by the same creed, that God's grace is enough. So I just pray. Father, we just want to thank you. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, that in our thorns, your strength is made perfect in our weakness. God, we thank you that you are just so good to even give us a vision of the future, a vision of what's ahead. God, that you, you don't leave us in this life visionless, but you just show us, Lord, what's, what's really important, what's really in store. God, I just want to pray this for myself and everyone here, Jesus, that you would just give us um, a burden for the eternal, for what matters. Thank God how we just get sidetracked throughout our week. We get caught up in day-to-day living. That, God, we begin to believe the, the lie and the facade of this world. That we think something might here might satisfy us. Something here might meet that deepest longing and craving of our heart. But I ask that you just remind us again today that that deep longing and craving we have could only be found in you, Jesus. And so would you just speak? Would you move? We just want to thank you in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, there are some things in life that are kind of meant to be shared between two people that you almost don't want to, like, involve everyone into. If you're married, you kind of get this. Like, this might be between your, your spouse and you. But there's some things in life you just want to keep private and intimate because it's just, it's just a meaningful moment. Or maybe someone kind of lets you into one of those moments in their life and you see a new side of them, a new perspective of them. You know, years ago, um, when I was a, a youth pastor, I was texting with one of these young guys. I think he was a senior. Or he just graduated, or was about to graduate. And my wife and I used to meet up with him and his girlfriend quite a bit, like talk and get lunch. And so we were texting. And he's like, you know, let's meet on this day, this time. And I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, a few hours later, right before bed, I get this long text from him. And it was a beautiful, sweet text that he meant to send to his girlfriend. And I was like, hey, dude uh, great talking earlier. I think you didn't mean to send this to me. He's like, oh my gosh, my bad, but I'm so sorry. I'm like, no worries. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I actually like, responded to him like, thanks, babe. That's so sweet. And, you know, trying to mess with him. Well, the next morning I wake up to about 15 text messages from him again, thinking I was his girlfriend. And this time is a little bit more, you know, made me blush a little bit. Uh, it's probably not 15 text messages you want to send to your pastor. And so I, I get this. And I'm like, oh boy. All right. Um well, hey, and I, I responded to him again kind of a similar way. He's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so embarrassed, you know? And it's one of those things where, like, I, I, I was just reading that going, I cannot believe he said that. So I actually brought to you what he said. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, but it was crazy. It was bizarre. You know, when he, when he opened up, I'm like, I literally cannot believe he said all of this. And I'm like, hey, man, it sounds like you're pretty serious. Maybe we should talk. Um, I'm sure, like, for both of us, I, I've never spoken to him again, actually. It just kind of ended like that. Um, it's one of those things though where like as he accidentally wrote this, he kind of gave me obviously like a glimpse. I saw a new perspective of him. It was not intended for me. It was something in private between him and his girlfriend. And and really I saw like a new side of him. And, and here's what's happening. Paul has this intimate revelation between him and God, and Paul's like, I shouldn't even let you in on this. I I shouldn't even utter these words, but I'm kind of going to let you in on this a little bit. Like, I'm going to let you kind of see what's happening here. And and I really want us to kind of see the big picture of what Paul's doing. We kind of saw what Paul has been writing to the Corinthians. He's like, these false leaders are boasting the wrong things. They care about the wrong things. They're boasting themselves. I'm going to boast in my weakness. I'm going to boast in the cross of Christ that Jesus might be glorified. And so Paul's like a different take. And so as we walk through these 10 verses, I mean, these are profound verses. It's like overwhelming. Reading this, studying this all week, you're like, God, lead this conversation. But here's kind of how I want to break this down. Because you're going to see Paul be lowered in that basket in Damascus like last week. He's honored. He's lifted up into heaven. Then he's humbled again. And then God helps him. So here's kind of the flow of today. We're going to see God honors Paul. Uh, God humbles Paul. And God helps Paul. It's pretty simple. God honors him. God humbles him. And we're going to see God help him. So let's just read again verse 1 through 6. I want to see how God honors Paul, like what is going on here. Verse 1, Paul says, I must go on boasting, Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I think he wants to get it clear that he doesn't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Listen, God really honored Paul. Paul has this dream or revelation, or whether in the body or out of the body, he does not know. So let's just talk through this really quick. Paul's like, let me change the conversation a little bit. I want to go into dreams and revelations. Paul had a lot of different visions. If you actually read in the book of Acts, Paul saw Jesus on the road stop him, and he said, "Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Persecute me." And basically, that was like Saul's conversion moment, right? Saul becomes Paul. Uh, in Acts 13, Paul has another vision in Corinth. He's like, "Hey, listen, Paul, I'm with you." Uh, Paul has another vision in Acts 18 in Jerusalem. He has another vision in Acts 23. Like Paul had a lot of different visions where God would minister to him, speak to him, and Paul says, let me tell you about one that is a little bit different. Uh, let me tell you about one where I know this man, and if you notice how he writes it, he writes in a third person, and, and there are some who like go, you know, why is he doing this? Is he writing about someone else? It's pretty much guaranteed, like everyone kind of falls into the consensus that Paul is writing about himself, but he was kind of using like a, a Jewish rabbinical tactic to kind of write and not necessarily be about himself, but it's about him. Paul, because he even talks about how God gave him this so that he would not be conceited. He turns it back to him. But Paul's writing about these vision, this vision he had. Now, I want to point this out. It says 14 years ago. Now, 14 years ago was obviously really early on in Paul's ministry. This might have been not too like, long after when Paul got saved. So it's almost like right away, Paul has this vision. Now, we're not sure when he had this. Like, where was he exactly? Actually, around 14 years earlier, it's close to Acts chapter 14, where if you remember Paul, he was stoned. He mentioned this last week in his letter, but he was stoned outside the city of Lystra. They dragged him out like they thought he was dead. He comes back to life apparently and walks back into the city to preach the gospel, which is the most insane story ever. But you you read Acts 14, it's like maybe this is when Paul had this vision of heaven. Maybe he truly was dead. He says, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. God knows. It could have been at that moment in time. We're not really sure exactly. But Paul goes on to say uh, he has this vision 14 years ago, and he said I was caught up to the third heaven. Now if you're anyone who just reads the Bible and you're like, why does he say third heaven? What is that? It seems to be that Paul is actually trying to be really specific with where he was caught up. The idea of the third heaven, uh, you know, the the scriptures kind of use different terms for the heaven or heavens. The first heaven we would consider might just be the air, the atmosphere. It's like where the birds fly, like where it's the clouds above. The, The heavens, the second heaven, we would say that's just like, that's the stellar heavens. That's the galaxies. That's the sun, the moon, the stars. The heavens declare the glory of God. We would call that the second heaven. And the third heaven, why does he call it the third heaven? Probably because he's trying to be really specific by saying, I was caught up to the third heaven. I was caught up to where God dwells. It wasn't like I was in the air. I wasn't looking down at my body. It wasn't some like weird mystical thing happening. I was actually in the presence of God. I was where God dwells. I was in the third heaven. Maybe he's just trying to be really specific with this. He was caught up to the third heaven. I love what it says in verse three. He says, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. You almost want to sit with that word for a second. You know, I, I think we forget this about heaven. I, I love that heaven so often, just the place where God dwells, like just God's presence, it's called paradise. You know, when you think about heaven, and I just remember being like a little kid, sometimes heaven can be daunting and overwhelming. Sometimes you think, oh my gosh, I'm just gonna like sing worship songs forever. Well, I even like that. I'm not even good at singing. Like sometimes we get stressed out by heaven. I, I think I've talked to so many people who've gotten stressed out about the idea of heaven or eternity. We forget that heaven is called Paradise. You know, when you hear that word paradise, like, what do you think of? That's, like, the only time we can, like, that's probably the only word we can use to relate to just the beauty and magnificence of heaven. You know, when I think of paradise, I have this picture in my mind. Like, for me, there is one spot we went to in the world that I absolutely love. And I I think, when I think of paradise, I think of this place. And I think of, like, when when we try to describe heaven, we kind of have, like, an absence of language and words. Like, what can we use? How can we say it? The best thing we can say is paradise. It's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. He goes, hey, listen. He goes, well, the thief said to Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And it's interesting, right? This, this, the way heaven's described is described as paradise. And I love this. Maybe you remember like the book Paradise Lost. This idea of what we had in the garden was so beautiful. Paradise. I mean, it's perfect. Or we walked with God. We knew God. We hung out with the animals. We ate whatever we wanted except that one tree, but we did eat it. But like, you think about paradise. And you think about this idea of having that with God. The whole Bible it's basically the story of paradise lost and paradise regained when you see Revelation. You see Revelation, you see this idea, this heavenly city that's described as like this garden city, like this, new tr- like this tree that produces a new fruit on it every month, rivers coming from the throne, you know, just, the, the, just around the throne of God, the colors, the imagery, magnificent, it's beautiful. I love that when people, actually in Revelation, you can read this later, but I love that it's like a mixture of a garden and a city, like, that's the best thing we can think of. It's like, you have city, which is like, we love the city life. We love the buzz and the excitement of a big city. But also, like, no, I'm a country person. And it's like, heaven's described as, like, both. Like, but you also get that, like, garden life, but yet you're with people. I don't know, somehow it's like that mixture of both. But you see this this beautiful paradise. I just want to point this out. I don't want to move on from that. Paul goes, this guy, me, myself, I, I was caught up in the third heaven, the presence of God. I was caught up in paradise. And again, you know, I think I just want to mention this one last thing. You know, I read a book years ago just called Heaven. It's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I highly recommend it because, again, it's one of those books where you're just going, God, like, give us this craving for heaven. Heaven is so beautiful to be in your presence. It's not about sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and having a meal. That's going to be awesome. It's not about the food. That's going to be unbelievable, right? Those things are amazing. But it's the fact that I can be in your presence where there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you, Jesus. He describes heaven as just paradise. And he makes it really clear. He goes, the things I saw, the things I heard, it wouldn't be right for me to even tell you about them. Actually, verse 4 says it that way. He heard things that cannot be told, which, which man may not utter. Like, I, I don't have a right to even speak into this. You know, it's interesting to me when you you read people who have these visions of heaven and they write a book and they make a lot of money and they go on tour. Like, let me tell you about heaven. I struggle with that at times. I do. There might be some validity to it at times. But you think about Paul. Paul's like, I can't tell you about it. It wouldn't be good for me to do that. It wouldn't do it justice. It might actually persuade you in a different way. And you think about Paul writing this, it's just, like, it's just not lawful for me to, to even speak about this. You know, I do think of what Paul said earlier to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 where he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can even conceive all the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Like We can't even fathom everything that God has prepared for, for those who love him. But I also want to mention like, verse 10, he says, but the spirit of God has revealed them to us. There is also something that goes on to say, we can't fully explain it, the beauty and magnificence of it, but I also do believe at the same time, God wants to like give you a little taste of heaven. I think God at times tries to give us these glimpses of heaven, because obviously in the book of Revelation, we see a more thorough revelation of the kingdom to come. And I think God is trying to create this longing and craving within our hearts. You know, I think something changed within Paul dramatically after this vision of heaven. In Philippians 1.23, listen to this verse, we'll put it up here for you. Paul says, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. You know, you re- think about that. It just sounds like that's, that's a guy who saw heaven. That's a guy who's been in the presence of God. He's like, man, I have a desire to depart, to leave this world and be with Christ. He goes, but it's better that I'm here with you. There's still work to be done. I, I, God still has me here for a reason. You guys, here's what I want to get at. Um, I really do believe, and this is so interesting to me, Paul has this vision of heaven 14 years ago, very early on in his life and ministry, because Paul's about to face a lot of persecution. Paul did face a lot of persecution. And I think that the Lord, in his grace and his sovereignty, gave Paul this vision of heaven as just a beautiful motivation for his life. I think Paul was going to suffer a lot for the gospel of Jesus, and he's clinging to that moment 14 years earlier that we haven't heard about until this moment, that Paul's like, even though I walk through a lot, it's worth it because I know what's ahead of me. My, my point is, I think a lot of us here in this room need a vision of heaven. I think we need a vision of what's to come. I think it's so easy for us to fall into the trap that this is all there is, is in the world. You know, sometimes you ever just look around and like you see like what's happening on just life and the world and traveling, social media, and everything that's going on. And you're like, this is all a trap. It's all a facade. I feel like sometimes I'm like, ah, you must got me. Like I almost want that. Like I want that. It almost got me, world. Right? There's these times you're like, you know, this isn't real, you know, this isn't satisfying. You know, it's beautiful. Those things are beautiful and awesome. I love Ecclesiastes. God has made all things for us to enjoy. Like enjoy the enjoy the beauty of this world. Travel. Enjoy those things. See those things. Do those things. But we all know that's not the end goal. We all know that that's to reveal the glory of God. It's pointing to something bigger. And I think that Paul, who 14 years ago had this vision of heaven, and he's enduring so much suffering, we read it all last week, he's still going, he's still fighting, he's still moving forward. Why? Because he had a taste of eternity. And I really do believe this is so necessary in our Christian life. I love what Paul said in Colossians 3. He goes, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. If you've been born again, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. Have a vision of heaven. Have a vision of the eternal honestly i think again in our world it's so easy even when we're young we think i got 20 30 50 40 i got all these years left to live whatever it might be and we really don't know just how short life is and how long eternity is and i think we need a, a, a real view of heaven like has god placed in in your heart the reality of heaven like do you get that this truly is a, a real place a real destination that this is not just some concepts Has God, like, really placed that in your heart? Has God revealed to you the reality of just eternal life apart from God? Where that would be, what we call hell or separation from God. Like, is the reality of eternity placed in our heart? I think Paul had just had this, and this was a great motivation for him. And there's almost like, as I read this, and you think about what that would do to you. You think about, I saw things I can't even tell you. I can't even describe it. It wouldn't even be right for me to describe it. I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. I have no idea what was going on there. But God gave me this vision of paradise. And, and the thing for Paul is saying, this I believe was like a motivation for him. Like he, he knew what life was all about. I love how Randy Alcorn said it. He goes, everyone was created for a person and a place. Jesus is the person and heaven is the place. Everyone here was created for a person and a place. You know that? Everyone here is created for a person and a place. Jesus is the person. Heaven is the place. And Paul is this reality of just heaven. Now, as God honors him, remember Paul, like, humble life, beat up, abused, kind of went through a lot, shipwrecked, all that. Paul gets goes through all of that, and then God honors him, gives him this vision of heaven. And now we're going to see number two is God humbles him. After this great vision of heaven, you see a great humility. Let's read verse seven. We'll keep going. Number two, God humbles Paul number two, verse seven, Paul says, so to keep me from be- becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. All right, Paul has this great, exciting, I mean, I can't imagine that revelation, of like heaven, and then he's like, and then after that, God gave me this thorn in the flesh to humble me, to keep me from being lifted up with pride, to keep me from, from becoming conceited. You know, and that's how it works often, right? Like You guys know this. It seems like after great mountaintop experiences, there's like great valleys. You know, you think about Jesus being baptized and the Father, like the heavens open up and God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove and right after he goes in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. It's like right after like this amazing revelation from god there's like a valley it's crazy how so often our christian life you have these amazing moments with god and then you almost seem to have not too long after that these dark moments people have written about it in different ways it's like some people describe it as the dark night of the soul maybe it's not a night but it's a season of life where you go god where are you maybe you felt the way you feel like there's this void in your life you feel like i believe i trust in jesus but what is the season of life i'm in what am i walking through right now God, why are you allowing me to experience this or feel this? And even in that void, God's grace and love is there. God's love is there and moving in such a certain way where he's like, he's like, you, you experienced me in the mountaintop. I want you to experience me in the valley. I want you to experience me in the darkness. There's just something about how God uses this so often. This is one of those things throughout my Christian life when I think about from being a teenager to this day where it's like you have amazing, beautiful moments, and then you have moments where God just keeps you humble and reminds you. That just happens in life, Right? We, we know there's those things. I don't know why just this came to my mind. Like, I think about one story. It's, it's stupid. It's not really spiritual. But I remember in high school, my senior year, uh, you know. Season of basketball is over. Proms coming up. I was at the gym playing basketball. I broke my foot uh, right before prom, so I go to prom on crutches. And I'm on crutches. You know, Kimberly was my prom date. We were like, yeah, high school sweethearts, that whole thing. She was out of high school. She was, you know, a year older. And I was like, yeah, she's older. And she came to my prom. And so we're at prom, and it was awesome though. Even though I was on crutches, it was an awesome night. Like, and it, you know, the crutches didn't affect me too much because I went to a Christian school and dancing was at the devil, anyways, right? So it doesn't really matter. So we actually my prom, we had um, my prom. We had like a game show night. Like the hired. I don't know, some company come in, like a giant stage and game show. And I was like picked, I don't know if they felt bad for me to kid on crutches, but I was like, picked to be on stage. We won the game show like with my friends. Like, ah, oh, it was such an epic night. I remember that night, like one of the best nights, senior year, prom, game show, so much fun, friends, Kimber, everything's going on. Uh, we're like, let's go bowling, right? I remember going to the bowling alley I'm on my crutches going up the stairs, and as I'm going up the stairs, camera's like, can I help you? I'm like, I play basketball. I can do this on one leg. And as I'm jumping up, I hit the step. I hit my broken foot. I throw my crutches, scream like bloody murder. As I fall, all my friends start laughing, like, they fall on the ground laughing. The security guard, who's there at, like, 1 a.m., like, 1, yeah, a.m., he, like, looks at me and just starts laughing. And I'm, like, I was like I'm, like, and I grabbed my crutches and ran, and like, started crying. It's awful. Um, after this great high, I didn't really cry, but after this great high came a great low. It's just funny because that's how life works so often. Like, in life, we have these great moments of just great heights, and then we have great lows, and I, I think the point is, we got to see that God wants to teach us in the lows as much as he wants to teach us in the highs. Obviously, Paul had a vision of heaven that was mind-blowing, that was amazing, that was incredible. But it was actually in the low that God probably taught him the most. It was when he had this thorn given to him that, that he learned, I believe, the most about Jesus. Not from the vision of heaven, but from the thorn came after. And I really want us to hear this because all of us want a vision of heaven, but no one here wants a thorn. And I get it. I don't want a thorn. No one's like, yes, give me a thorn. I want like, give me that vision of heaven and just lay, leave it at that. But but so often God's like, it's in the thorn you're going to learn the greatest lessons. So let's just kind of break this down really quick. A thorn was given to him. Um, now the question is, what is the thorn? Like, what did Paul have? There's so much ink spilled on, like, what did Paul have. Uh, Tertullian, one church father said it's constant migraines. Other people said it's malaria. I mean, there's some, uh, Luther said it's demonic oppression. Everyone kind of speculates about what the thorn in the flesh was. Some say it's physical. Some say it was mental. You know, one common thought is that Paul's referring to an eye problem he most likely had. Paul in Galatians, and at the end of Galatians chapter 6, says, with such big letters I am writing to you. Actually, Paul in Galatians 4, we'll put the verse up here. I don't know if you know this. Galatians 4, Paul says to the Galatians, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Like, what does that mean? It's that Paul apparently has some sort of eye problem, some sort of eye issue. Maybe he's going blind. There, there's some, maybe because Paul had other people write letters for him at times, he would say it and they would write it for him. Uh, the idea was Paul had some sort of ongoing issue in his flesh. I think the idea that he's saying in his flesh, it probably was a physical ailment. Now, here's what I want to get at with this. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, and I think that's really intentional by God and I'm very thankful for that because if you think about it if we knew it was migraines if we knew it was whatever anytime we would get one anytime we'd have an issue we'd be like oh I'm just you know just me and Paul man suffering together like you would think like mine is your back problem that's not an issue mine is like Paul's like I'm, I'm very thankful it's kind of general and vague because there's also there's also some like idea that all of us can relate to Paul when Paul says a thorn in the flesh, I th- and not being specific, all of us have had those ongoing issues where you go, you know what, I feel like I can relate to Paul. Whether it was spiritual, mental, physical, I'm very thankful it's pretty vague because God has really, I think, shown us that we can relate to Paul in this dynamic in some ways. There's something beautiful about like, it. So if Paul walked through this, like what can we learn from this? The best way, I think, to describe a thorn, a thorn for Paul was an enduring source of personal pain allowed by God for Paul's good. All right, simple definition. It's just an enduring, it's an enduring source of personal pain. This idea of a thorn, let me be really clear. It seems to be more than a trial. Trials, a lot of times in life, when you're, someone's like, I'm walking through a trial, it usually has like a short-term like, time frame. Could be weeks, days, months, maybe years. This thorn seemed to be a lifelong issue. 14 years ago, still walking through it today. I think that says something, because if you've ever struggled with some sort of lifelong, like, God, will I ever be free from this? Will I ever get away from this? God, will you ever take this out of my life? Apparently for Paul, it seemed to be a lifelong issue. That honestly brings me a lot of encouragement. There doesn't seem to be a moment where this thorn was ever completely removed. I, I want to say this because if you do have some sort of thorn in your life that you feel like this might never go away, hey, you're in good company. And you're not alone in that. And I find that incredibly encouraging. You know, the question that people ask is, did God give Paul this thorn or did Satan? And I would say, yes, yes. And here's the idea. I actually want to put it this way. The thorn was allowed by God, sent by Satan. The thorn was allowed by God, sent by Satan. That's how Paul describes it. It's actually a gift from God. The phrase he uses is given by God. It's like, it was really like a gift from God. I don't view thorns or trials as, as gifts. Paul views it as a God gave this to me. He says it like this receiving way. God gave it, I received it. But Satan wanted to use it to harass me. That's what he says here in this verse, or buffet me, or correct. Satan wanted to use this to just bring my life to an end. God had a goal for thorns, and Satan had a goal for thorns. Please hear that. If you have thorns in your life, do you know that Satan has a goal for the thorns in your life, and God has a goal for the thorns in your life? I find this fascinating. If you have an ongoing suffering, trial, whatever you want to call it, a thorn in the flesh, if you have something in this in your life in this way, you feel like this might never end, know this. God has a goal in mind for that thorn. And that's a good goal. But also keep in mind, Satan has a goal in mind for that thorn. He wants it to produce something in you. He wants it to do something to you. But God wants to use it to redeem God wants to use it in a greater way. I think this is just incredibly important. I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon says, Paul says, There was given to me, he reckoned his great trial to be a gift. It is well put. He does not say, There was inflicted upon me a thorn in the flesh, but there was given to me. Listen, the thorn was both given ultimately by God, but is also a messenger of Satan. The thing I want us to see is one of Satan's goals was a thorn for Paul. One of his goals was to overcome him with fear so he'd miss out on the future. I want you to think about this. If there's a thorn in your life, I think you could say there's many goals tied around this. Uh, Satan's goal is to overwhelm you and I with fear so we miss out on the future. We miss out on what God has for us. I think, as we talked about last week, when it comes to suffering... When it comes to trials, when it comes to pain, obviously that can either produce a lot of bitterness in us, or that suffering God can use to transform us and make us more like Jesus. It's crazy how the same trial, the same suffering, the same issue, it has it can either do one of two things, either push us away from God or push us closer to God. I'm very thankful this pushed Paul closer to God is what we'll see. So here's the question we have to ask. It's necessary to ask. Why does God allow thorns? Why does God give thorns? Why does God allow it? You know, I really don't think we're going to be able to like, answer that just super quickly or neatly like, in this just one message. If you think about this, there's 42 chapters in the book of Job to basically say all of our theories and ideas are wrong, and, and God, is doing God is doing something we just can't see. You know, like when someone tries to tweet something about suffering, it's like, mm, there's, it's way more complex. It's not, it's not as simple. But I want to point out a couple reasons Paul says, here's why God gave me this thorn. Let's look at the first one. Number one is this, to protect you. God gave Paul this thorn to protect him. What does Paul say? Verse 7, he goes, this thorn was given to me twice, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul goes, this thorn was given to me so I don't become prideful. God gave me this thorn as a sign of protection. I don't know if we always see thorns as protection. God's like, I love you so much, Paul. This vision and revelation of heaven, it's, it's beautiful, but it could also ruin you. It can also do something to you that's not good. So I have to give you this thorn to keep you from becoming prideful. Listen, thorns might be, not always, thorns might be given by God to simply protect you. I want you to see that this might be the most loving thing God could do. It's just an interesting thought. You know, there's there's a verse in the book of Hosea. Remember Hosea? Hosea was called to marry this woman named Gomer. Gomer was essentially a prostitute, constantly giving her not essentially she was, constantly giving herself over to men. She at one point in time sells herself, being married to Hosea sells herself to another man. God is like, "Go buy your wife back." Right? And basically in the book of Hosea God is saying, "Hey, hey, I want you to see Hosea through what I'm asking you to do, I want you to see this, that I am the I am the husband who loves his bride. I will pursue the bride at all costs. Even when Israel goes away, he uses he uses Gomer as a, an example of Israel. Even when uh, Gomer goes away, or when Israel goes away, when Israel flees, when Israel pursues after other gods and other idols, I'm gonna be the husband that pursues. I'm gonna be the husband that loves. And it's really interesting. I wanna read this verse. It's in Hosea chapter two, verse five. This is what God says about Israel. Hosea chapter two, verse five, uh, God put it this way. He says, For she, like Israel, she said in her heart, I will go after my lovers. So Israel said, I want to go after my lovers, not God. I don't want God anymore. I want my idols. So therefore, God says, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Israel says, I don't want God. I'm going to go after other loves. And God's like, I'm going to surround you with thorns. And this is like an agricultural kind of analogy that they would get and understand. But he's like, I want to protect you from outside stuff. I I, I don't want you to be able to put yourself in harm's way. I love you too much. The, The simple idea for this is God is way more concerned, obviously, about our eternal state than about our present comfort. I mean, here's what we see. When it comes to this idea of a thorn, God is saying, Paul, I care way more about your eternal state than your present comfort. This is hard for us, I believe, as like American Christians. Do we get this? That God cares way more about where we are eternally than about our present happiness. God cares way more about us being with him forever in fullness of joy than whether or not we get our way in a specific moment in time. And I want you to see that. That is a good father. That's good parenting. It's like, again, as parents, you get. I, I, I care way more about your future than whether or not you get your way in this moment in time. You think this will make you happy. I care way more about the long term. And God is saying, this is my heart for you. Another way to put this is if God didn't intend to use this thorn for good, then he wouldn't have given it. If God didn't intend to use that thorn in some redemptive way, then God wouldn't have given it. You, you and I have to see that if there is a thorn in our life, God intends to use it for good. We have to see that. God is not just going to give difficult things for the sake of giving difficult things. It's ultimately for our good. And so here's what we see. Why does God give this thorn? To protect him. To keep him from being prideful. He's like, I love you too much to let you be ruined by this amazing vision. To let it fill you up with pride and you miss out on what I have for you. Number two is this. Why does God give this? I'll say, say it this way. Simply to produce prayer. Why does God give thorns? Let's just put it this, let's, let's put it simply. To produce prayer in our lives, what did Paul say in verse 8? Look at verse 8, how he said this. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So three times Paul goes, I prayed, I pleaded. I begged you, God, take this away. I begged him three different times. Now, the idea of three times is not like one, two, three, like maybe he like, God take it away, Got take it away, Got take it away. He didn't answer my prayer. It's probably like he went through three lengthy seasons of prayer. It's probably like the idea that he had like three times where he just gave himself over to prayer. And three times he begs God to take it away. When you see this issue in Paul's life and him praying three times to take it away, who does that remind you of? It reminds us of Jesus in the garden. Three times he's praying, Father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This idea of like three times, like, God, I surrender this. I surrender this. Like, I'm asking you. I, I want to be actually really clear. It is absolutely okay. It's more than okay. Actually, Psalm 100 talks about this, or 103 talks about how we should pray for healing. I want you to know it's okay to pray for healing. It's okay to say, God, remove this. That's absolutely okay. Don't feel guilty for praying, God, remove this. I think that we almost have like this, sometimes like a weird... I don't know, image that we need to take on more pain. It's okay to say, God, remove this. Please remove this. This is painful. This is difficult. Paul prayed three times, God, remove this. Take this away. But after the third time, we'll see in a second, he got his answer. And here's what I want us to see, a simple way to put it. Uh, When faced with a thorn, pray for either a release from the thorn or a revelation concerning the thorn. What we see is you say, God, release me from this. Release me from this. I get it. That's our first response. But we should learn, and hopefully this is something we get after time. You say, God, maybe you won't release me, so just give me a revelation. What is it you want to show me from this? Again, when Job suffered and walked through everything he went through, what happens in Job 38, God goes, Job, you've asked me a lot of questions. Now I have some questions for you, Job. Where were you when I formed the world? And then God just goes off by saying, God, let me tell you and remind you of who I am, Job. I'm not like one of your friends here. I'm good, I'm grand, I'm omnipotent, I'm omniscient. God basically asked Job a series of questions to give Job a revelation of himself. The point of all of Job's suffering, you could find, summarize in Job 38, where God's like, you don't need an explanation, you need a revelation of who I am. Because the thorns won't make sense. They don't always make sense. If you personally suffered physically from some sort of sickness or disease or cancer or whatever it might be, or some sort of mental thing, or some sort of spiritual thing, you realize this doesn't make sense. Like, I don't get why I'm going through this. And oftentimes, God does not give us an explanation. But what God wants to do is give us a revelation. And that's exactly what happens. So the third thing is, we're going to see, why did God give this thorn? It was to display his power. God's like, let me just show you how powerful I am. Let me remind you of who I am. And this brings us to our third point. So listen, God, he honors Paul by lifting him up. He humbles Paul. And then we're going to see in verse 9 and 10, God helps him. And here's how God helps him. Here's how God answers his prayer. Let's look at verse nine. Paul says, or God says, or Paul writes, but he said to me, Jesus speaking, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." It's absolutely mind-blowing. Paul goes, I prayed three times for this, but then he goes, Jesus speaks to me. Now, by the way, this is the only time Paul quotes Jesus in a way where Jesus was specifically speaking to Paul. Paul quoted Jesus in different ways, but this is the only time Paul quotes a personal message from Jesus himself. And his personal message from Jesus himself is, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Let's just break this down. God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. Do we really believe this? This is one of those things that I wrestle with. When you feel like you're going through life or thorns or trials or just loss or pain or you're grieving something, and that phrase, my grace is enough, sadly, let me just say this. Sometimes we, the church, can say this to people, and it almost becomes like we use it as like a weapon and it hurts people. We're like, well, you're going through a lot, but God's grace is enough. And it can almost do more harm than good, sometimes we need Jesus, not sometimes, we need Jesus himself to kind of affirm that statement in our lives. There's something about when you're going through something and someone's like, hey man, God's grace is enough for you, and you're like, be quiet, <laughs> right? Like, don't talk to me. But you know what, we do need that alone time with Jesus where Jesus goes, no, my, my grace is enough for you. Sometimes we do say his grace is enough, that's beautiful. But to be honest, it's way better when Jesus says my, my, my grace is sufficient for you. Not his, but mine. Like Jesus personally writing that on your heart. My grace is enough. There's just something about that. That we need that a moment with God alone where God's like, hey, I'm enough. You know, when you think about grace, grace is unbelievable. Maybe you heard the acronym for grace: grace, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a really hard way to sometimes like define grace because grace doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. You're guilty of sins. You're guilty of all these things, and it's not like the judge is like guilt, or innocent and bangs the gavel and says you're innocent. He's like innocent and here's a brand new car and house, and you're like I don't get why you'd do that. Like grace doesn't make sense. Grace isn't just God declaring you innocent. Grace is God declaring you innocent and then putting Christ's righteousness on you. Does not make sense. Grace is bizarre. You know, there's something in, in like theology we'll call common grace. There is common grace. God gives grace to everyone. The fact that anyone and everyone can wake up and breathe breath in their lungs, that's common grace. When a parent has a child and they don't believe in God, they don't believe in Jesus, they can feel that common grace. There, there's just something about common grace that is so beautiful. God's like, I'm going to give everyone common grace. Then there's like salvation grace. There's, there's grace that leads to salvation. That's Titus two eleven grace. There is like salvation grace that we want the whole world to know more than just the common grace. We want them to experience the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ. We want them to know the grace of God that sets them free from sin and hell and death and their past and their mistakes. We want them. To, everyone that is the most important grace. But when you're in Christ and you've experienced salvation grace, there are times where God gives you specific grace. And please stay with me on this. There is times where God gives you like sanctification grace. You can almost see this in different capacities in the New Testament. Paul writes about grace in ways where you're like, I know grace is about salvation, but Paul's using that, like, about my daily life. And there seems to be a specific kind of grace that God gives us to face things. And I think this is one of the most beautiful types of graces. I don't fully get this. I'm thankful for common grace. Like, thank you, God, that we can, like, look at creation and go, wow, it's amazing. That you can hold a baby for the first time and not believe in God and go, this is incredible. I don't, what just happened here? There's a beautiful common grace. Then there's salvation grace that just is the best thing ever. But then there's specific grace that God gives you to meet those needs in that moment. You're like, wow, God, I never knew how much I needed this specific grace. Paul is basically God is not like, hey, Paul, my salvation grace is enough. Like, yes, but also God's specific grace in that moment is enough. Like, God ministers to us in such a unique and dynamic way that's like this, you need grace in this moment. Let me give you grace in this moment. Let, let me give you a peace that will surpass all understanding in this moment that no outside person or, or influence could give. Let me give you this specific kind of grace for this moment at this time. It's absolutely beautiful. It's something I, I truly don't know if I fully get other than you can say you've got to experience it. You know, when you think of grace, God's grace is enough. It sounds ironic. Like, think about that. When you say, like, God's grace enough, uh, is enough, it's like, of course it is. You know, imagine a fish, like a small fish in the ocean. It's like, there's not enough water here. It's like, you're crazy. Like, you're surrounded by water everywhere, like a giant ocean. And we're like, God's grace is truly enough. Sometimes we feel like it's not enough, and we forget that we're swimming in this vast ocean of grace. Like, we forget all that is around us. Listen, God's grace is enough, put up a couple phrases, because it expresses God's acceptance and pleasure in us. God's grace is enough because it's saying, I, I'm pleased with you because you are mine. Not because you're, act- you're mine. Like I try to share this all the time with my son. I'm like, "Hey, dude, I love you. Like, why?" I'm like, "Cause you're mine. No reason other than you're mine. Like, I just love you. You can't work for it. Can't lose it. God's grace expresses this deep pleasure. Listen, God's grace is enough because it's value, It's available all the time. This is so interesting. It's never like God's like stingy with His grace. Like oh, I don't know. I'm kind of running out of grace here. Like you know, sometimes you feel that way about God. God's like, I gave you grace last week, last night. I can't give it to you today. I'm sorry. I'm all out of grace. Like it's available all the time. Thank you, Jesus. That grace is available all the time. Listen, God's grace is enough because it's the very strength of God. Those moments are like, I can't get out of bed today. I'm tired. I'm mentally and emotionally tired. God's grace is enough because it's the very strength of God. My strength is made perfect in weakness. This is, again, one of those things where I can't really preach it or teach it. You have to live it. You have to experience it. You have to go, God, give this to me. God, write this on my heart. Would you say to me, God, your, my grace is enough? Like, would you say that to me? Would you press that on me? I can't be taught this in Sunday school, Bible church. I can't, be, I, can't, I can't be taught this. I need to write this on my heart. My grace is enough. Listen, I love one more Spurgeon quote. He says this. Listen to this. He says, it is easy to believe in grace for the past and the future, but to rest in it for the immediate necessity is true faith. Believer, it is now that grace is sufficient. Even at this moment, it is enough for thee. Do you hear that? It's easy for me to believe the theory of grace for my past sins and my future sins, but do we realize that His grace is enough for right now? Like right now, I can rest in God's grace for the past sins. I can even, for my mind, can get that He, he forgave me my future sins. But sometimes, when I'm walking through trial, do I realize that His grace is enough right now? That is the specific grace. It's enough for you in this moment, in this time. He says, "My power is made perfect in weakness." again let me say it this way we said it john macarthur put it this way he says we do not live on explanations but we live on promises like we will not get an explanation we will just get a promise my grace is enough i want an explanation don't you god where were you when you did this like what's going on and god's like i'm not going to answer that let me give you a revelation of who i am my grace is enough for you you know, one of the most beautiful things in studying this, and you can just do this on your own. You can type in 2 Corinthians 12 interlinear in Google and find this yourself. This is unbelievable. When he says, My grace, grace is enough for you, this is literally what it says. He says, Sufficient for you is the grace of me. I think that's better than My grace is enough for you. He says, Sufficient for you is the grace of me. I'm the grace. It's not grace I give you, the grace is me. This is mind-blowing. I read this kind of like Yoda, so I, had, I heard Yoda's voice, which is not good. Sufficient for you is the grace of me. I, that, don't read it like that. No, that's what I'm going to think. That's how I remembered it. You know, when, I, when you read this, you go, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful. Sufficient for you is the grace of me. Now you hear Yoda, and I'm so sorry. for just I don't know why I said that. But I love this thought so much. God's like, it's not just grace I offer. I'm the grace. I'm the grace. Do we get that? Do you, do you not understand that God's like, I'm the grace? You know, we, we think we want heaven this place, but heaven is a person. We think we want paradise as place, but paradise is a person. Sufficient for you is the grace of me. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm the grace that you long for. I'm the grace that you're craving. So therefore, Paul says, listen, verse 9. Paul says, therefore, in light of this, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I love that. Like, Paul, like, just discovers this powerful truth. He goes, fine, I'm just going to boast more in my weaknesses so more power rests upon me. Like, brilliant, Paul. That's so good. He's like, you know what, this is, this is mind-blowing. That if God's grace is enough for me and my weakness, I'm not going to boast in strength, I'm going to boast in weaknesses, because that's where the power of God rests upon you. Again, we need to seek out the power of God through weakness. It's such a bizarre thing. It's like, in our weakness, the power of God can be made strong. It's crazy, think about this, by the way. People who fell into sin didn't fall into sin a lot of times in their weak areas of life, they fell into sin in the strong areas of their life. David was known as a man of integrity. David's like, it doesn't matter if Saul tries to kill me, I'm not going to kill him. He, like, cut off a piece of his garment, and he's, like, weeping. Like, I can't believe I cut off a piece of his garment in the cave. Like, David had such crazy high integrity, but where did he fall? In his strength, in his integrity. You know, you think about this with Peter. Peter's strength was his courage. Hey, Jesus, let me walk on water with you. Come on out. But you think about Peter, like, just speaking, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, this boldness, this courage. And then on the night, you know, the night he's being taken to be crucified, cuts off this guy's ear. Not the wisest, but He's bold. And then just within a few hours later, he's cursing Jesus and denying Jesus by the fire. See, he, these men fell not in their weaknesses, but in their strength. Paul's like, I can't really boast of my strengths because I really don't have any. I need to boast of my weaknesses because that's where the, the power of Christ rests upon me. It's just one of those things as Christians, like, it's weird because I know this goes against our nature. We want to boast in what we've done, what we've accomplished. People are like, wow, look what God's doing. You want to go, this is the grace of Jesus. Ah, it makes no sense to me. It's the grace of Jesus. It's one of those things to you realize my strengths could be my biggest pitfall. And you have to realize, I'm going to fight for the boasting and the finished work of the cross. I'm going to boast in what Jesus has done in the grace. Paul's like, I will all the more gladly boast then in my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he ends in verse 10, and he he says this, for the sake of Christ, this is the point, it's for the glory of Christ, the sake of Christ, that I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't experience strength until I really, really uh, pre, uh, kind of experience my weaknesses. This is one of those things that's hard. Like, I know, it, so let me put it this way. When you're talking to someone who's like, uh, just learning about Jesus, trying to follow Jesus, we I want to get quick to preaching grace. I want to get quick to preaching all that God has done for us because it's beautiful. But it's crazy. When you sit in your weaknesses, like when you sit with your sin for a little bit, when you read Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, where before Paul ever gets to grace, he just pointed out the depravity of man, the brokenness of man, how evil man is, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, all of us are broken, even wicked, people and we kind of sit with that for a little bit and then grace comes you're like oh my gosh it's so much better than i realized sometimes it's like we go straight to grace which is so great but it, you don't realize how great grace is until you realize how great your sin is you know i love how one person put it he's like i am a great sinner two things i've learned in life i am a great sinner and christ is a great savior and, and for us to realize christ is a great savior you have to realize you are a great sinner i am a great sinner like, I will never appreciate this, the amazing grace of Jesus if I don't appreciate how sinful and disgusting I am, how weak I am. See, there's the idea that the grace means so much more when you've really tasted and seen of your wickedness. Then you taste and see the Lord is good. You go, oh, my gosh, God, you're so great. You know, it's, it's a person who just draws closer to God, closer to God, closer to God. And you can say, wow, your life seems to be so holy. But it's like as you get closer to God who is light, it reveals more and more darkness. and You realize, no, like, no, there's a lot of messed up stuff in me. And you realize that God's grace is so much greater. I thought it was great when I first got saved, but 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, his grace is way more better than I first thought. His grace was better to me after 30 years than it was the first day. And that's what happens over time. Paul goes, you know, I'm gonna boast of my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me just point this out. I know it's easier said than done when we talk about thorns in your life. Because in reality, a lot of you are suffering or have some sort of long-term thing. A lot of us will have that. If you don't have that, you will have that. And I know it's a lot easier said than done. Like, what do I do with these thorns? I get that God's grace is enough. Okay, just so I get that he needs to write that on my heart. I it just can't come from someone preaching at me, telling me this. I get that. I need to experience it firsthand. But here's what thorns remind me of. Thorns, this thorn in the flesh that Paul speaks of, reminds me of the thorns Jesus bore on the cross. When you think about this thorn, it's not, again, God is not immune to suffering. I want to point this out. In paradise, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God and enjoyed everything freely. And then what happened, when sin came into the world, it says God cursed the ground with thorns. The curse that came was, you know what, this is going to be hard work, labor, thorns, you're going to cut yourself, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. And the same curse, the, the curse of thorns, Jesus bore that curse on the cross. Jesus took the crown of thorns and says, let me bear the curse for you. The curse that came to this world, I'm going to bear on my head. I'm going to be pierced through with thorns. I'm going to experience this so that we can one day have no more thorns. See, I think the good news is that, yes, thorns come into this world, but there will be a day when there will be no more thorns. No more thorns in the flesh. Not just literal thorns, but just no more suffering in this way. Jesus goes, I took on all suffering. I took on the thorns so that you don't have to. Yes, we'll have thorns, but so we don't have to eternally. So that you and I don't have to suffer forever and ever. That Jesus bore the thorn so he could set us free from that in the long term, in the long run. I'm very thankful that, again, God is not immune to suffering. Our God suffered with us, and alongside of us. And Paul is basically saying, in this whole section, if you think about it, Paul is like, this is when we're most like Christ. Because Christ also suffered. Because Christ also walked through this. And Jesus bore the thorn, so when I have a thorn in my flesh, I can be reminded that Jesus knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one, to be rejected, to be socially ostracized. He knows what it's like to suffer. And when I have a thorn in my flesh, I'm reminded of the king of kings who bore the thorns on his head. And I'm also reminded of the future that there will one day be no more thorns. That the thorns will be completely expelled or removed. And so listen, this is why we gather. This is why on the first day of the week we celebrate the resurrection. We say Jesus is alive. He's risen. His grace is enough for you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the grace of God, which brings salvation, which has appeared to all men, do you believe that this is enough? That this is sufficient? It's more than common grace. It's even more than salvation grace. God's specific grace in those moments of suffering. His grace is enough. Thank you, Jesus, for this grace. It's a grace that I don't think we've, I, I begin to t- scratch the surface of the vastness and beauty of God's grace. And so we just want to rest in the finished work of Jesus. We're just going to close at our time and we're going to sing, and we're going to praise God, and I just want to invite you, if you've not experienced the grace of God, believe on Jesus today, and you will be saved. Beg, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Say, God, give me this grace. I want to experience this grace, because you know what? This world is not enough. This world does not satisfy. This world has never been enough. It just fills, it just keeps going into my life, and there's just this vacuum. It just sucks it in and in, but God, let your grace be enough. Let me rest in the finished work of Jesus. Amen? Why don't we just bow our heads, pray really quick, invite the worship team back up. We just want to spend some time thanking him. Father, my God, we just thank you again that your grace is enough. That these thorns in life, this like ongoing suffering in our lives, is an opportunity for us to experience your strength, for us to really experience your nearness, that God develops prayer within us, we're so easy to forget you. We're so easy not to turn to prayer. It's so easy for us to make it the last thing. God, we want it to be the first thing, the, the ongoing thing. When the thorns removed, God, we want to continue to press in and seek you. God, we don't want to lose sight of of the thorns that you bore on your head. God, we thank you that you bore the curse. Thorns came into this world, and then you bore the curse. You bore the curse of thorns, God, so that you could remove just eternally suffering the thorns of life, that we know that these thorns have an end date. God, we thank you for that. I just pray that you remind everyone in this room that the thorn in their life has an end date because Jesus, you make all things new. It might not be the way we want, when we want, how we want, but we know that Jesus' suffering will come to an end, that in heaven, you will wipe away all the tears, that there will be no more suffering or death or cancer or pain or loss. We will see paradise regained. God, I ask that for everyone in this room you give us a vision of eternity, a vision of heaven, the reality of heaven. God, if anyone in here has not yet received you or believed upon you, that they would call upon you right now, even in their seat, alone with you or with us, they'd publicly make it known that Jesus, we would not wait, we would not move on. Let us sit in grace. Let us never leave grace. Help us never move on from grace. Let it be the beginning point and the end point and the only point that Jesus, it's your grace. Your grace is enough. We thank you, we ask that you be present. We just wanna to sing to you now, worship you now, God, in your name, amen.